spent yesterday doing a lot of fun stuff. Um, was in the horseshoe, hence my complexion. Um, it was a lot sunnier than I thought it would be. Uh, I was looking forward to rain and cold, uh, but alas, it was not so. Um, then uh, got home after longer than I thought it would take us to get home. Was heading off to my friend's bachelor party and uh, had a flat tire on four. That was fun. Um, put on my spare. Thought it, I checked like a month ago, thought it was uh, filled up. Not so. Put it on, dropped the car down. I'm like, I need to get to a gas station like 20 feet and uh, didn't really work. <laughs> so uh, park that sucker and uh, now I need to go get two tires. So it's going to be fun. Uh, but we had fun at scene 75 last night. I, has anybody that's been there? Okay, it was my first time there. It was interesting. Uh, those go-karts are amazing, and I want one. Uh, <laughs> I'm surprised something electric could move me that quickly. So it was pretty sweet. Um, today we're going we're gonna to take a different uh, turn. We, we spent 20 weeks on Colossians uh, that we just finished last week. This week we're going to go into its companion letter, if you will. Uh, we're going to be talking about Philemon. Or as one of my good friends says, Philemon. Um, that's not how you say it. Philemon. So if you have your Bibles, please open to Philemon, and uh, we will hop into this. This is a companion letter to Colossians. Remember that Colossians is written by Paul, right? He's in Rome under house arrest or in prison, in jail. Um, house arrest there is not like we would think with the ankle monitor thing. Uh, they don't have that. Their ankle monitor was a chain uh, connected to the wall. So that's house arrest. Um, he's in chains, and he writes a letter, he writes multiple letters during this time, but the one that we just spent time looking at was Colossians. And what were some major themes that we saw in Colossians? Uh, well, the first that we typically see with Paul is an exaltation of who Christ is, right? So we see first an exaltation of who Christ is, almost a doxology, talking about who God, who Christ really is. Who do we worship? Why do we worship? That type of idea. From there, we kind of move into what is, what is supposed to have transpired, right? Because uh, you can be taken captive, right? Not, not just swayed or set off course, but captive with the intention to be destroyed with false teachings, right? Things that sound plausible. And we have to avoid that in order to stay firm, stay focused, stay on path with Christ. The idea being that you die to yourself and then you are raised with Christ, as we see in chapter 3. And because of this new life because we are raised now with Christ and we're not our own we have a new heart and this new heart is supposed to set off a, a plethora of different changes so we see the changed heart leads to a reordered life we see reordered relationships we see different priorities and focuses in the Christian life and because of that then what well we see some of the relational aspects that Paul brings in towards the end of the book and then like we saw last week what are some just some things about the changed heart that, that we'll see. And we see how the changed heart cares about people, how it encourages people, right? How it is on single-minded in its focus and its ministry and its passion and pursuit of God. So because of all that, we have that background now to jump into Philemon. Uh, Philemon is an interesting letter. It's very short. For most of us, I imagine it fits on one page or less uh, in your Bibles. Um, nevertheless, it is a gem, and we should not skip over it. Um, it just so happens to fit very well with Colossians because these two letters were most likely, if not for sure, delivered at the same time. Uh, so let me set a little bit of a, a picture for you, all right? How many of you guys are involved in one of our home gatherings? All right, so you know that intimate feeling, right? 
we're all tight and collected, like if I made you all get up right now and move up to like the front two rows, um, that's, that's kind of where we're packed in, right? Uh, this is kind of the idea that they have, all right? So they have one larger room. Uh, so we're not meeting in the bedroom, which is small, but in the main common family room. We meet in that room and we, we share a meal together. Uh, we talk, we enjoy each other's company, and we have teaching and reading of scripture, right? So we discuss all that. That's, that's basically what's going on here. Except, uh, as Dave and I were talking this week about uh, this, because he's going to be taking the next half next week. Uh, we were kind of comparing notes, and he was teaching me. <laughs> um, he was talking about kind of the way that their houses were set up and what would happen. Because remember, we talked about slaves and masters in chapter 4 of Colossians, right? If that makes you uncomfortable, we're not talking about American slavery, okay? That, that was an abomination. That was, that was not what Paul's talking about, okay? This is Paul way back when, not talking about 17th century America, all right? Um, so with that in mind, he's talking about Roman slavery. Rome, I mean, the wheels that ran Rome were the slaves. I mean, they did everything. It was not uncommon for there to be slaves in households. And so when they would meet then the Christians in the gatherings, the free people would sit at the table and recline, and then the slaves would be off to the side on the wall, uh, not able to recline with the group of Christians. Uh, so if you, will, if you think about this, if we had our gatherings like in our houses like we're used to, we would all be in the main room sitting, enjoying our meal, talking, when we'd had slaves in like, I don't want to say in the kitchen because they were still in the same room, but kind of lying along the wall. You know, standing up, not able to really sit down with everybody else. So in that context, we have Colossians read to everybody. So uh, you think people's ears would perk up a little bit when we get into the end of chapter 3 and beginning of 4, and he's talking about slaves and masters, right? Uh, we talk about that reordering of the relationships, what it should look like. That, sl- that masters should treat their slaves in accordance with understanding that they are a slave to the father, that he is master over all. It changes the way that you approach those relationships. And now... With them sitting there like that, we have all of Colossians read. And all of a sudden, then we have Tychicus, who's the, the one who's reading, uh, conclude that and then say, uh, I, I also have one more letter to read. Uh, Paul, Paul gave me one more letter to read to you all. Um, keep in mind that there's this other guy standing next to him that came with him from Rome uh, that Paul also sent, right? So this guy over here, some of you guys know, some of you guys don't, okay? So he's standing over here, and Tychicus says, I've got another letter to read. Oh, wow, why, why didn't you just write it in the first one? And then he begins to read, and uh, an interesting uh, picture kind of takes place. I'm a very visual person, so I, my life is a movie, um, and anything that people say becomes a movie in my mind. Um, and I have Evernote. Have you, anybody know what Evernote is? Right, it lets me sync all my notes. And yet Robbie's like the prophet of Evernote. Um, it syncs between my phone, my iPad, my computer, and my brain. Um, so I can put anything in there that I want, and I have a whole list of video ideas that will never get accomplished, but they're really funny. Um, but that's my life. So everything happens in a movie. So when I read scripture, it typically happens in a movie. Um, however, sometimes there's guns and explosions and stuff, but that's because I'm, I'm a guy. Um, so that happens, but I've got this weird movie playing in my mind, and it's really awkward. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. So with that preface, the title of today's message is Effective Fellowship. Effective Fellowship. So my first question is, what is fellowship? I mean, when we 
talk about fellowship. I'm pretty sure Rick Warren, uh, who wrote the Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life, Purpose Driven Youth Ministry by Doug Fields, his youth pastor, Purpose Driven Everything. Those, remember those? Um, one of the purposes of life is fellowship. Right? We are supposed to live in community together. So what is fellowship? A lot of times we can't really put our thumb on it. We can't really describe it. We know what it is, I guess, but I don't know what the word is, so therefore I can't convey its meaning. But it's this thing that we do, right? It's so much more than that, and I think we tend to stress the other ones like discipleship, worship, serving, um, the spiritual disciplines. We stress those a lot more than I think fellowship. And fellowship tends to be the one that we kind of say, oh, yeah, that's just something we do. That is something that we strive for. Um, and the danger in that is that we find ourselves having relative success in all the other aspects and saying, something's not quite right. Oh, it's fellowship. Let's, let's get that into gear. And all of a sudden you're playing catch-up with fellowship, which out of all of those really isn't something that you can just do in the spur of a moment, right? Serving, you can sign up for more stuff to serve, right? Worship, you just worship, <laughs> You change your heart before God. Um, you let him reorder that and refocus your mind. And, and worship gets reordered. But fellowship is something that is not just between you and God. It's between you and his other believers. That's not something that you can just make up ground in. So we find ourselves behind having to having cover extra ground uh, and, and not well. I mean, we stumble all over ourselves when we do that. Uh, but this is when we run into problems where we don't have the type of hospitality that we should. We're not caring for others like we should. Um, yeah, we get, we're on mission together, but we don't necessarily have the heart for each other that we should. So what does effective fellowship look like? Because out of the churches that I've served in, Renovation has some of the best fellowship I've seen. Now, something that scares me, it's also the smallest church that I've served in. So when I was at Thomas Road, um, while I was in school, it had 25,000 people there um, over the course of a Sunday. Um, fellowship there is going to look different, right? Um, I, I didn't know everybody there. Um, I had enough trouble trying to remember all the youth that were there in the middle school, let alone the high school. Um, it's a different animal when you get there, but this idea of fellowship should still be present. It should still be just as strong. But it's going to look a little different. Renovation has what I think is awesome fellowship. I think we have things, obviously, that we need to work on and pick up the slack on, but there's something special going on here. Here's my fear. Um, we talk about this reordered life, this reordered relationships type stuff, and we work on serving. We're, you guys are knocking out your membership classes. Today's the day of reckoning for most of the people on my list. Um, so I hope you guys have been working on your stuff. Uh, but we've been working on membership type stuff, and you see things in there about family, serving, worship, uh, all the different identities that we have in missions, and, uh, and all that's kind of wrapped up in who we are as our identity. We do well on all those, but what does community look like? What happens when we're all on mission and we just let that one thing slack because, well, we're just hanging out together? Fellowship is more than just hanging out together. It's more than just um, the people that we have similar beliefs in. So before we get too far into that, um, as I may have already, uh, let's go ahead and hit our text. Uh, today we're going to be doing verses 1 through 16. It's only one chapter, um, so I'm just going to call them by their numbers. Uh, so let's go ahead and read this, our text first. Uh, if you look at Philemon chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, 
our fellow soldier, and to the church and your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do uh, that which is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful to both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me and my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for, sorry, for perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you both in the flesh and in the Lord. Father, as we dig into uh, this short letter today from Paul, I pray uh, that you challenge us in our fellowship. Father, that you let us see where we have been affected, and Father, where we have been lax. Father, as we sort through the words of Paul to Philemon, uh, understanding their implications, uh, both explicit and implicit, Father, that we uh, submit our hearts to you and your word. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so what is fellowship? When we're talking about the fellowship of believers, this is a certain type of fellowship. It's not the kind that you will find outside of the body of Christ. Uh, that's for a very good reason that we're going to see in a little bit, and it's going to have huge implications for next week uh, as we finish out the letter. The fellowship of believers is going to be specific to those who have been regenerated in Christ Jesus, right? This is by faith alone, uh, through grace alone, right? We're not attached to Christ, or, or do we find re regeneration through baptism, through uh, spirits, through the um, gifts of the Spirit, through speaking in tongues, through circumcision, <laughs> Um, through those other ones, everything that is wrapped up in the law that the Judaizers wanted to part onto Scripture, we see Paul rebuking, and we find ourselves then with the fellowship of believers who have been saved by grace alone through faith alone, right? So in this moment, we have already split uh, the populace by a wide margin. Uh, we find ourselves in a group of people that ideally should have the same values, should have the same doctrine, and should have ultimately the same Lord, right? you have the same Lord, it makes it a little bit easier to submit to somebody. And when you come under a common banner, it's easier to work together, right? There are 104,000 people yesterday. They're all wearing gray and scarlet. It's easy to come together when I don't know any of these people, except apparently he was there, um, so I would have known one. Um, but don't know any of these people, but we're able to come to, together under a common banner and accomplish the purpose of screaming our heads off, right? Same thing, we come under a common banner in our Lord Jesus Christ that Paul constantly pushes forward uh, in our lives. So when we get to this point, uh, we have to say, okay, what does fellowship with these people look like? Because certainly it has to be different than what fellowship would look like with those who do not know Christ, right? Just a different animal. So 
we look in here and we look at our uh, introduction. We see that Tychicus has come from Rome. He's finished Colossians. He says, brothers, I have another letter. And he begins by saying, uh, I would probably say, here we go. Um, but it would begin as Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. So our authors are obviously Paul and Timothy is nearby, but certainly Paul is writing this as we see it's very, very personal. He says, in Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker. So all of a sudden we come from this large letter to the church, right, the gathering of believers in Colossians, and we have a personal letter. <laughs> he starts off with Philemon, and then it says Aphia, who, he says our sister, um, we can potentially infer here, I don't want to say certainly, but Aphia sounds like it is probably uh, Philemon's wife. Uh, followed by then Archippus, who is potentially, since we're addressing family, uh, his son. But it may just be somebody else who's in leadership of the gathering, because then next we see uh, the gathering, right? So he says, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier. So uh, the soldier comes with the Ephesians. We're looking at the armor of God, uh, a worker, a warrior for Christ. So it could either be his son following the trend of family, or it could be a, a leader of the church, followed by and to the church in your house. So how many of you guys did the renovate us this past week? Yeah, all right. Uh, Brian, do you remember the question of um, private matters? Okay. Um, <laughs> make sure you guys are checking renovate us if you're on Facebook. Uh, it usually goes up between Thursday and, uh, well, usually Thursday and Friday. Uh, you can check and click that link and head over to the website. Um, just some good stuff to prepare you for where we're going. Um, some questions to ponder that will help to get you prepared for Sunday. All right, so this idea of this very personal letter coming out, um, what did we tell you guys to do in church discipline? What's the first step? It's one-on-one, -on -one, right? One-on-one. <clears throat> -on -one. This is different, okay? This is not discipline. Philemon has done nothing wrong. Right? This is simply a request that Paul is getting ready to make. So we don't need any one-on-one -on -one private matter stuff here, all right? This letter, as we go, you'll see that it seems like it should be a private matter. It seems like something that Paul should have told Tychicus, hey, just give him this and let him read it, you know, let him take care of it. But instead, he not only writes to Paul and has him read it out loud, but he also then addresses the entire gathering. And it, what we would typically think, you know, think should be a private matter, Paul doesn't raise in that way. Um, much that we tend to think of in our life as private should perhaps be recognized as less so if we take the fellowship of believers seriously. As we talk about fellowship today, I hope you guys can see that maybe some of the things that we keep private shouldn't be. Uh, I don't just mean sin. Um, we have a culture of trying to call out sin and, and be able to help each other in that, uh, in, our, in our fellowship. It need not just be that. We're looking at a different level of fellowship. So, um, so we go there, he addresses all of them, and then we see then that grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, we have Thanksgiving beginning, as Paul typically does. I thank my God always making uh, mention to you, or of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love, and of the faith which you have toward the saints and toward the Lord. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective. So in this letter of urging the sharing of faith uh, with believers as well, we see that Paul shifts his order a little bit. If you have 
Uh, your Bible flip back to Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to do a little parallel comparison. Ready? If you look in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Colossians, he says, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Back to Philemon, I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. Back to Colossians, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Back to Philemon, Because I hear of your love and of the faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. You see incredible parallelism here, right? Paul changes his order a little bit in Philemon when he starts to point out um, that Philemon's love is directed both to God's people and to the Lord Jesus. And so then we see that his faith connects him to both the Lord Jesus and to all God's people. So we see that these two things tie together in each other. And what's interesting is the shift seems to be as if to... It's kind of like putting pressure on, but it's not in the sense that we would think of like pressing in on a button. It's more of a pay attention to this because it's going to be tested. Because we see in just a short bit that the central subject of this letter becomes, is, is one of God's people. So if we want to see this faith and this love for the Lord Jesus Christ, and also I thank you because I've heard of it for your love of God's people, let's see this in action. It's getting ready to come up. He's not saying that he's not doing it, He's saying that it's getting ready to get tested. It's kind of a hint towards where he's going with that. So then we jump into his prayer in verse 6. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. So here's where we get to break it down a little bit. Verse 6, I pray that the fellowship of your faith. What does fellowship of your faith mean? How many of you guys have an ESV? Does it say sharing of your faith? I kind of like, I'm using NASB today, I'm sorry, I broke my Matt's rule. I'm supposed to use an ESV while I'm up here. Um, I like the NASB's version of this a little bit better. Um, when you think of sharing, it, it can have way too many connotations, right? We have sharing like, I'm going to share my meal with you. We have sharing of like, I'm going to tell you a story. We have sharing of like, colds. <laughs> um, sharing is, is kind of ambiguous in the sense here. So when we think specifically of sharing your faith, what do you typically think when I or Matt or, or whoever says, hey, you need to share your faith? Are you just going to tell a story about it? Are you going to try to tell them the gospel? What is it that you're trying to exactly share? It can get a little bit confusing. If you look more literally here in the Nazareth, it says your fellowship of the faith or your participation in the faith. I think that, that hits home a little bit more of where Paul is, is trying to go. We're not talking about just telling people about our faith, but we're talking about the participation in the faith that we have together. Remember that common banner I talked about? This is it. This is where we come together and we participate together. This is where we all come under that banner and we say, this is what we believers have in common. We share in our faith, our participation in this faith. It is our fellowship. All of a sudden, this has a much bigger idea of we just hang out on Tuesday night has a much bigger idea of than, hey, how does your work week go? It becomes something much different. So we wonder then why we have people who don't believe in Jesus Christ coming into the church, coming into our home gatherings, and then really not seeing much of a difference. Well, it's not because we don't love each other, right? I mean, there's people outside of the church that love each other, right? What sets us apart? Well, Christ, you say. Yes. 
Exactly. So why isn't that making an impact in your life? Why isn't that allowing me then to care more about the people who are around me? If Jesus is walking through town having compassion on those, why can I walk through town and just try to get the Chick-fil-A? There's more to it than what we've been given here. So when we focus so much on serving, on worship, all things that are so important in our lives, we miss this idea of fellowship and what it's really supposed to be. When we are participating in the faith together, we have a different idea of that. So we see then and he moves directly into, in his prayer, <coughs> excuse me, I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. I pray that the participation in the faith may become effective. Now, if he's saying, I pray that it becomes effective, does that mean that it wasn't before? Not necessarily. Um, I think it would be overstepping our bounds to say that it wasn't being effective at all. Because we see in his thanksgiving um, that there, there's much going on. We see that um, in verse 7 that his heart has been and the saints have been refreshed uh, because of Philemon's specific ministry. Now what's interesting is if you read verse 4, um, we, part of the problem with English is our pronouns. Uh, we have a lot of yous where we could just put names in, right? Uh, that changes then when you're looking at Greek of who he's actually really referring to. So the you here, I think my God always making mention of you. Who is that you talking about? should be Philemon. So if you write in your Bible, put Philemon there, okay? Because that one is specifically for Philemon. I thank my God always making mention of you, Philemon, in my prayers. Because I hear of your love, then the church. Does it make sense in our Bible? That's the way it translates. So we have then a plural your, which is not uh, Philemon himself, but, but the gathering. So I thank my God always making mention of you, Philemon, in my prayers, because I hear of your, the gathering's love, and of the faith which you have, you all, the gathering, have towards the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your Philemon, your faith, may become effective. It's interesting here when Paul is addressing the leader of this gathering. How he can switch back and forth because he recognizes that it's a group effort because we're talking about fellowship, because we're talking about the body of Christ. But at the same time, there's a great impetus on the leader here. Now, there's a specific favor coming later, but he is the leader of this home. So, as we move through there, out of his prayer, uh, we find that there is going to be a test case soon with Onesimus. I pray that it become effective. I pray that this participation um, and the faith will result in this, this outcome that I'm getting ready to ask about. So, if you want to have kind of a litmus test, you want to see what the condition would be to know whether or not that your faith is being effective is going to be coming here shortly. So what does he pray for? He prays for effectiveness in the faith. He prays for knowledge of God. If you flip back to Colossians chapter 1. Try not to get any paper cuts. We're going to be flipping back a lot. Colossians chapter 1 verse 9. For this reason also since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and, and please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. In fact, in Philemon, it's for I have come to you with much joy. Oh, I'm sorry, I skipped. Um, be effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for whose sake? Christ's. Exact same thing that He just prayed for in 
Colossians. Well, why does he need to pray for the same thing? Well, it's going to be a recurring theme. I imagine he wrote this one letter, Colossians first, and then immediately began to labor over Philemon. There's a pattern in, uh, in teachers that the things that they're working on in their life, the things that they're studying, tend to kind of come out in what they're doing. Um, if it's something on the heart, it's going to be an overflow of the heart, right? We're going to talk about it. It's going to be part of who we are, part of where we're leaning. A lot of our examples are going to lean that way. If you don't believe me, hunting starts in like two weeks. So you'll see. Um, <laughs> that just kind of comes out of who we are. So what's interesting is he's laboring over this idea of knowledge and understanding, and it is the context of knowing and understanding, the, as uh, his professor from uh, Southern would say, the astonishing work of God and the astonishing good of God, uh, that what he is doing among us, uh, by uniting us with Christ, Philemon's fellowship and the faith will become effective. So by knowing and understanding the true goodness of who God is, I mean, think about it. We go back to Colossians and we see that the God of this universe is having fellowship with us. When that ceases to blow us away, we're done. By knowing and understanding that, by knowing and understanding that he sent his son to suffer for us and to die for us, and that that alone is what saves us, and that alone is what brings us from darkness to light, it is astonishing. Astonishing. And when we lose sight of that, we lose the game, okay? It's just over. Because all of that is what allows us to move forward. And when we have that context, then, of that astonishing good that God is doing among us, which happens in fellowship, and then uniting us with Christ, that changed and reordered heart, in Colossians chapter 3, then Philemon's fellowship and the faith will become effective. Do you guys see that? Does that make sense? I'm trying to draw a long line through this and connect as many to those Colossian dots as I can. All right, so we have that prayer finally as we move into the, the fellowship at work. So we've talked about the fellowship. I hope I've defined it well enough for you, and you can see where we're kind of going with it. What does effective fellowship look like? Well, we know it needs to be different. We know it has different aspects to it than what we would typically label it with. It has different implications, really, for where we're going to go with it, where we're going to arrive. What does it look like? Effective fellowship at work. What does it look like? So if it's going to be true fellowship and it's supposed to be something more, then it should be stronger than what we would typically say, right? So regular friendship. It's, it's football season. People have football parties, right? You go over to a friend's house, you watch TV, uh, the game's on, you hoot and holler, have fun, eat way too much food, go home and take a nap while the 8 o'clock game's on, right? That's fellowship. Is that what we're supposed to have? Is that what Paul is talking about? No, does that mean that that's wrong? No, but it's not effective, is it? Not in a eternal outcome, right? What should this look like? Effective fellowship reveals itself in difficult situations. When you have a difficult situation, when you are out of your comfort zone, when things aren't working the way that they're supposed to, uh, the cream rises to the top, right? That's where we finally see what, what makes, makes up... Uh, the parts that make you up, those come to the top. And we get to see your character for what it really is. Uh, we got to experience some of that, those of us that went to Haiti. Um, get to see who you really are. Uh, there's times where you're like, this is their fault that I'm like this. And then there's the other times where you're like, man, this is me, <laughs> right? Um, we get to kind of come face to face with our character. The same is true. Our fellowship together, we get to come face to face with what our fellowship really looks like in difficult situations. So you were talking about a difficult situation. Um, if I've been hiding this too long, well, let's go ahead and talk about it. Onesimus is the one standing next to Tychicus. 
Um, some of you know Onesimus. Um, depends on how long you've been part of Philemon's household. Some of you don't. Um, but nevertheless, while he's standing in the background and Tychicus is reading, um, I'm sure there's some nudge-nudge going on, okay? Um, some pointing, some, you know, some of that, right? Um, and then the murmur, 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 right? People are talking, and they're saying, hey, isn't that the guy that ran away? He's a slave, right? He ran away from Philemon? Yeah, the, the, the boss, him? He ran away from him. He stole something, too? Like, he's, <laughs> wow, okay. What is he doing here? And so you can imagine how long it takes us to read Colossians, right? We've done that in our Bible studies and stuff like that. You guys remember how long Almond <laughs> took to read Colossians? Um, I don't, it could potentially take a long time to read that first letter, right? To, the, the way it needs to be read, the first time you're hearing it, to, you know, that. He's standing there the whole time. And people in the crowd are saying, what's he doing here? And then all of a sudden, Tychicus closes, starts a new letter, and calls Philemon out. Talking about awkward? That is awkward, all right? Everyone in the room is saying, what is he going to say to Philemon? Onesimus is standing there. I can't imagine what his facial expressions would look like. But that is an awkward situation. Talk about fellowship then. What happens then in the fellowship? What makes that effective? Because this is much more than just enjoying the company of like-minded people. The situation here at hand is on the absolute, absolute extreme of difficulty, right? Now, as we read this again, remember now that verses 8 through 21, which will take us into next week, is not for the gathering at all. It is simply and specifically for Philemon. Right? Anytime you see you in here or your, this is Philemon that we're speaking to. So it's like the crowd parts and Philemon's right there. And we're talking just to him. So let's read verse 8. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper. Yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Uh, you look in your ESV, it, it states that a little bit differently. I think the word apostles in there. Um, Paul and his relationships was all about his love for people. Right? Uh, he appealed to that at the beginning of this very letter. He appealed to it at, in Colossians talking about how he thanks God for the love that Philemon has for all of God's people and the saints and for Christ Jesus, our Lord. We see that he, he is a person of understanding that we're supposed to love each other. And if we're talking about fellowship, I mean, love should be a, <laughs> a primary component of that, right? You're not going to spend time with people that you hate. It's just not how that works. So when we're looking here, he's appealing then to first what? Love, right? For love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you. He could have appealed to him as an apostle. Paul is not a timid individual. He calls people out. He turns people over to Satan. He does whatever he needs to do to accomplish the job and the task that Christ has given him, right? He calls people out at the end of the last letter. He calls people out whenever it is necessary. He says, hey, this needs to stop. This needs to happen. He could have done that. He's not timid. Instead, he... He calls out and says, because of love's sake. Now, what's interesting here is he does it still, he explicitly uh, does not say what he wishes to have happen, right? There's no clear command here or following. Instead, instead he says, in order, 
for you to do that which is proper or fitting or required. It's not a clear, explicit command of, hey, do what I'm getting ready to say. Instead, he appeals to him for love's sake and says, I ask that you do what is proper. Uh, Paul, the apostle, the apostle Paul, okay, comes to you and says, hey, I'd really like it if you would do what was proper. No. You can't say that, right? I mean, there's just, you can't say no to Paul. Um, if he's saying do what's right and you say no, you're probably wrong, whether he says it or not. He doesn't have to say it. That's an interesting and important note for us, guys. From God's word and from um, the wisdom that he's going to bring to your life from other people, is you don't have to explicitly say what needs to happen to you, okay? Um, I think a lot of us get caught up in this idea of, well, Scripture has to say it, or I won't listen to it. Even in Scripture, we can see very clearly what Paul wants to have happen, what is right, what is proper, what is required, yet it is not explicit. It can be implicit in its meaning and be absolutely divine and authoritative. We have to be on guard for that, where we can then try to rationalize our sin or rationalize our disobedience or rationalize our um, timidity in just jumping in and being obedient to God as we try to put things off by saying, well, it doesn't explicitly say that. Now, again, the danger here is that we then read things into the text that are not proper. Um, we, we need to be, this, important hermeneutics um, are there. We have to be careful how we interpret Scripture, not reading things into it. Um, but understanding that there are implicit meanings for us that we have to be on guard for. So, moving from then, he says then, um, he, he uses first this relationship of apostle, but then he decides to change into uh, brother, right? What's interesting then is he jumps into um, this idea of uh, chains again. Do you guys remember how he ended Colossians chapter 4? Remember my chains. It seems kind of ominous. Um, but at the end of this awesome letter, he says, remember my chains. You guys remember what that was for? What was that for? Remember some of the language Matt used of it being a prisoner of Christ? How he kind of shifts his perspective. It's not, hey, remember that I'm still in prison, but it's, hey, I'm here for Christ. You can change some of the, depending on the, how you translate it specifically. When we look at prisoner of Christ, uh, at the end of verse 8, or I'm sorry, 9, he says, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. It's kind of like that, remember my chains, a prisoner of, for Christ Jesus. I'm not here because I did something wrong. I'm here because I proclaimed Christ. Remember that. It's interesting, too, here, though, that he throws in his age. He says an old man, right? <clears throat> he says, I appear to you, appeal to you now, since I am such a person as Paul, an apostle, the aged, wise, and experienced, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So we see a multitude of different levels that Paul could and then did appeal to um, Philemon on. Finally, we get to see exactly what I've been putting off. And the reason I've been putting it off, even though you know it, is because it's important to remember our context. As we jump into this last thing, I want you to remember that you're part of the house gathering. Okay, You're at the table, and you see this guy back here. And all of a sudden, Tychicus starts reading to Philemon, and you don't know what he's going to say. And so all these things are being read to you, and you're like, well, what, is he, what does he want? What is he going to appeal for? What is he? 
That's where we're at. And then finally, in verse 10, he says this. I appeal to you for my child, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, Onesimus, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. And I have sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart, whom I wished to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be as if it were by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason parted from you for a while, that you should have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. This is what effective fellowship then can lead to. So you're sitting in this house gathering, you see Onesimus standing there, Philemon's right there, Tychicus is here reading this letter. He appeals to Paul, and all of a sudden he just lays it out. Just lays it out. So let's look at the character of Onesimus. Who's this person that's standing here? What does he want? I appeal to you then for my child. He speaks to him as if he were a son whom he has forgotten in his imprisonment. This isn't obviously his baby, right? Not that kind of begotten, but rather this is someone who came to Paul while he was in prison and became a Christian because of the interaction then that took place. So as we move in, then we see Onesimus, his name, um, who formerly was useless to you. And this is interesting here. My name is Russell, right? Rusty? What does Rusty mean? Typically, if you name your kid Rusty, they're supposed to have red hair, right? You're supposed to have freckles. That's, that's what it used to be, right? I'm very much not that. Um, I'm also the third, and the other two don't look like that either. Um, names had meaning then. They kind of do now if we want them to. Uh, but our culture doesn't really put a whole lot of stock in that. Uh, names had meaning then. Guess what Onesimus meant? Useful. Or profitable. And interesting here then that Paul says, Onesimus, profitable, useful, who formerly was useless to you. All right, so that's like, that's a big deal. You talk about how your name means something, how it defines who you are then, and then he essentially strips it away. What does that look like? Your name is useful, profitable, but you are worth nothing. Talk about extremes with Paul. That's an extreme. Onesimus used to be that. He used to be useless. But now, remember I told you, big butts, right? That's a big butt. But now, Paul again, is useful both to you and to me. Take his very name and strip that away from them, and that's who he was. It's interesting, if you look back in Colossians, in chapter 1, we find that we were alienated to God, that we were hostile in mind, and that we were enemies of him. That's on that extreme, too. It's easy for us to sit here and look at a slave and say, yeah, he should have been something better. Or it makes sense that he's there. We forget that we're there, too. We were enemies of God. Yet, while we were still enemies of God, Christ came and died for us. We didn't have to throw up the white flag first. We didn't have to call truce. We didn't have to win the war. 
We were still sinners and he still died for us. We were still enemies and he still died for us and reconciled us to himself. So when we were sitting over here with Paul, or with Onesimus, whose name is now useless, we see a big but, but now he is useful both to you and to me. He then takes it a little bit farther. I've sent him back to you in person that is sending my very heart. We talk about the most personal part of a person, it's their heart. The two big common places in, uh, of, of the regions of the body for the Jewish culture, which is going to appeal differently than to uh, Gentiles, which is important to understand this, is you had the heart, right, which is the seat of the emotions, and then you had the mind, which is the seat of wisdom or knowledge or intellect, right? For the uh, Gentiles, it was a little bit differently. They would move it a little farther south into the bowels, uh, the deep inner part of a person, right, um, is what moves them. We're sending, I'm sending my very heart to you. And that has different meaning to me over the past year, having my very heart uh, and trying to imagine what that is to send someone so important and special and, uh, and needed to them. It's a much different idea than I'm just returning this dude and if you could send him back, that'd be sweet. This is my very heart. That's how he appeals to them. And that's what he says Onesimus is. So useless guy, now useful, my very heart, I'm sending back to you. That is astonishing. We talked last week in Bible study about how Paul had, just the people that Paul had around him, right, that were on mission with him, that were single-minded in their devotion, single-minded in their passion. They stood for him, they stood with him, and they stood beside him. And they pushed on together. He could trust them. They were loyal. They were men of great character. And then he describes Onesimus in this way. It's a special person. Verse 13, Whom I wish to keep with me, that in your behalf he might minister or serve me in my imprisonment of the gospel. This isn't, this isn't a parallel to his life as a slave, a servant. This is someone who is ministering to, caring for Paul, taking care of him. He just called himself old and he's in prison. He may have needed help, and we have someone who's very dear to him, his very heart, serving him. Again, uh, this is a big deal. I mean, he's laying it on thick here. Verse 14, But without your consent I did not want to do anything, that your goodness should not be, as it were, by compulsion, but of your own free will. Look back to verse 8 and 9. Verse 8, therefore, though, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do that which is proper. Yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you. Again, Paul is, is leading by example, by showing love, by loving God's people, by loving Christ, and by saying, I want this to be of your action. I want your church, even though they're hearing this letter, to see your love for God's people and to show them what effective fellowship looks like. I could order it, but I know I don't have to. 